Good afternoon, good morning, and welcome to Money's Alchemy. Uh, this is, uh, my name is Asfi. This is episode two, and we're really excited uh, to dive into uh, a very key year in history, uh, which is the year 1720. Um, and uh, I'm uh, also very excited that, you know, we, we, have, a, we have a really wonderful uh, guest today who I'm going to introduce shortly. He is someone who's... Um, who's been my teacher uh, and, and an amazing guide uh, in terms of just, uh, you know, sharing uh, some very relevant bits of history. And even the first episode that I did uh, on monetary constitutions um, was, was sparked by, uh, by a book that, uh, that Manny shared. Uh, and, um, uh, and so, yeah, I had some fun playing with this, uh, with this intro slide, uh, you know, where I'm talking about John Law as a Scottish adventurer of the 18th century. And Manny Rink on Cruise, you can't you can't see the title in in the way it's presented um, uh, as a as as a money nerd of the uh, of the 21st century. Um, but but anyhow, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you um, a very brief uh, intro on uh, you know what we're gonna talk about today. So today we want to talk um, briefly about um, the accounting behind credit creation, and then we want to go deep into uh, these two companies, the, the the Mississippi Company and particularly John Law and the and the South Sea Company, uh, which which were also which is also sometimes referred to as uh, as the South Sea Bubble, and, and there's this really wonderful quote um, uh, from John Law that uh, you know re uh, reflects his thinking on money, where he says that money is not the value for which goods are exchanged; it is the value by which they are exchanged, and um, He's quite a colorful character, uh, you know, and uh, a very ambitious character. And he he, he writes these two um, uh, these two publications in in uh, at, at a fairly young age. I think he was in his mid thirties in seventeen oh five, where uh, uh, where this is taken. Uh, but um, I want to start today by just um, uh, doing uh, doing two things. Actually, before before I get into that, I'd like to just uh, uh, introduce you. Uh, to uh, to Manny, uh, who is uh, well, who is still figuring out uh, his camera. But Manny, I'm so grateful that you are here, and thank you so much for making time for us. Can you can you hear us today, Manny? I can't hear you just yet. Now I can hear you. Sorry about that. No, it's uh, the, the camera fell off. I'm, I'm trying to adjust it. But uh, no, it's it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Asfi. Like, this is one of my favorite topics to. Yeah, to you you've been the you've been the instigator behind this topic. So I mean, uh, let's see let's see how this goes. I'm I'm hoping to uh, you know co-host this with you as as a regular going forward. But so just to like set the agenda, I mean, I want to talk by. Yeah, it's a very simple question to start off with, right? Like, what's the difference between money and credit? And, um, you know, there's, um, as far as money is concerned, there's this definition that's thrown around a lot that, you know, money is a unit of account, it's a store of value, it's a medium of exchange. Uh, George Selgin, whose work I learned about, again, thanks to Manny, calls this the three-pronged blunder in an article. And he says that money is nothing more than a generally... <laughs> medium of exchange uh, but when it comes to credit or the difference between money and credit there the difference is somewhat easier to see as in you know if you think of credit as a promise to pay money 
uh, that difference becomes easier to digest. The other part that personally I find extremely helpful in drawing the distinction is uh, looking at accounting. So I, I built my career as an investment banker and a private equity fund manager. So, you know, financial modeling is something I did quite a bit of. And so um, for me, like uh, looking at the uh, accounting that would exist under a gold standard has been very helpful. Uh, and we, you know, granted, this doesn't exist today, but, you know, just to walk you through what this slide is, it's showing that under a gold standard, uh, gold would be a central bank's asset. And, and this is very important uh, to distinguish gold here because gold is no one's liability, which is why it's called outside money. Uh, that was defined by uh, these two authors, Gurley and Shaw. But it's important to like see just this uh, this link over here that for a, for a central bank under a gold standard, gold are its assets and the currency that it's issuing against its gold are, li are its liabilities. And those liabilities are then a commercial bank's assets and the deposits that you place with the commercial bank are its are the commercial bank's liabilities, and then the deposits that are placed uh, uh, that that a corporation places at a at a commercial bank are the assets of the corporation, and then the securities that the corporation issues uh, are its liabilities, and and this is one way of thinking about you know how credit gets created, and in these slides. Uh, I've included in uh, notes uh, uh, that we've prepared, that I've prepared for you. Some of it, a lot of it comes from the work of Perry Merling, uh, who, who talks about, uh, you know, the so-called money view. So, I mean, if you'd like to dive deeper into these so-called T accounts uh, that explain how uh, the accounting behind money and credit works, you can do that. But before I go any further, I want to start uh, with definitions because Manny, this was an important prompt from you uh, in our exchange when we were getting ready uh, for this conversation. Uh, and you've also written a wonderful essay uh, on, uh, on, on Thinking Farm, your blog, about, uh, you know, about um, the functional aspects of money, that perhaps we should move away from uh, you know, looking at what money is, but move more towards what money does. Uh, and, and so perhaps I think definitions are the right starting point. How do you think about what is money and how do you think about the difference between money and credit? I think the, um, just, just to clarify, I don't disagree with George Selgin in terms of the classical, or I guess the proper interpretation of these older economic texts. I think his argument is basically saying the original definition of money, as it was written about in the 1800s, was that it, it is predominantly a medium of exchange. And I think that is the correct interpretation of those texts. What I was trying to uh, explain in the Thinking Farm essay is that um, <clears throat> there's this kind of easy dismissal of what's happening in terms of digital currency design. I think economists love saying, well, you know, Bitcoin is not a store of value medium of exchange or unit of account. So or maybe a store of value, but it's not the other two. So it's not really money. And I think that's a little bit of a short sighted kind of easy dismissal. So if we look at kind of the long span of uh, economic history, we see that most monies uh, or things that anyone would consider money uh, are uh, really just very good at one of those three properties and not really the other two. So mm -hmm. let me give you an example. 
let's say, you know, if we're, we're looking back at, uh, you know, the medieval European economy, uh, you know, from, say, the 1500s all the way up until the 1800s, there's these things called bills of exchange, right? And so they used to be, you know, they're, they're kind of an evolution of the letter of credit or lettre de foire, I think, in the French uh, version of it which is, uh, you know, my promise to pay a merchant or a merchant's promise to pay another merchant at a different seasonal fare, right, a year in, in a different place in a different location. And so the, the key evolution there is that these contracts then become bearer instruments, so they become transmissible, right? So I might have, you know, I might have given you a, um, a roll of uh, cloth, right, Asfi, somewhere in, uh, I don't know, Lombardy. And, uh, you know, I now have this letter that you're going to pay me in uh, Paris uh, a year from now. Uh, but I can actually sign that and pass it on to somebody else. And so there's there's a whole sequence of evolutions with um, these, uh, you know, kind of bills of exchange, which in some ways, they're, they're kind of the earliest decentralized set of smart contracts, right, running on paper. They're, they're validated by a set of... Uh, signatures between you know in a peer-to-peer -peer way mm -hmm. and they are crucial in facilitating the growth of uh commercial exchange in in europe for hundreds of years and so uh they're definitely a, a means of exchange right they increase the monetary liquidity right to allow for economic growth would you really say that they're a unit of account i mean mm -hmm. <laughs> probably not right uh or a store of value Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's the type of money that functions really well in one way and not really the other, right? The other one is obviously fiat currency, which people love to point out. It's not really a store of value, but it's a very good medium of exchange. Um, you have a couple other examples of this sort. So, for example, um, in the Qing dynasty, right, the last dynasty in Imperial China, which ends in, in 1911, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of the accounts held by the government. The way you pay your taxes is in a currency called the Kuping liang or, or tail, the cooping tail. And, you know, the way that uh, merchant houses, especially the ones that do a lot of, uh, you know, invoice financing and, and remittances, they all keep their accounts in the cooping tail. The thing is, the circulating media of exchange in the Chinese empire is predominantly copper coins, which then sometimes get exchanged in silver ingots, none of which are the cooping tail, right? So here is very obviously the unit of account but it's not the circulating medium of exchange. Mm. Um, and so it, it's in fact quite durable because of the fact that all these other currencies convert into it when you settle transactions. So, you know, in some ways I think what is happening with the digital revolution is that we now have this kind of broader set of tools to start building monies that are really good at one of these three functions. Yeah. And I think the idea that state-issued money fulfills all three is... A little bit wishy-washy. And there's a fascination with gold, right, in the gold standard. But I think that was almost an artifact of the times and the fact that the growth of the gold supply happened to kind of be similar to the uh, general growth rate of industrializing European economies. So things kind of all look like you're fulfilling all three functions. But in reality, you, you really weren't. So that, that, that was kind of my take uh, on the three-pronged definition. No, I, and I think it's a wonderful take. And I won't... Um you know, go com get completely lost in the essay that Manny wrote. But here's a graphic that I want to leave you with. This is this is from Manny's essay, uh, you know, where he talks about, uh, and if you go down it, you know, he talks about that, you know, um, at least 
from his perspective that you know our money can be good at two of these things it can't do all three meaning stable peg durable value and an adaptive supply and um, it's it's a really really um, in my in my view uh, a very powerful uh, you know way of uh, of 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 thinking about uh, of thinking about money um one other way that i like to explain the issue of credit and this is for my gambler friends out there uh who like who have played uh, cash games uh poker cash games and this is um so i mean it won't make sense to a lot of people so it's won't make this won't make sense to people you know who haven't really uh, you know played those big cash games uh, poker cash games that take rake but those who have this will make sense to you uh, and i know there's a big overlap uh, in our in our audience uh, who like to play poker so in a poker game generally when a poker game starts um everybody brings their money and you know you clear the dues by the game's end but sometimes these games get really big and then they get official and then you know the person running the game he also starts like taking a little fee from every pot known as the rake and then one thing leads to another usually in these games and then very soon you find that the table starts offering credit and if you've played in any of these tables like i have you know that the moment credit is available on a table pot size goes up by 5 to 10x easily every single time and um a lot of that has to do with there's usually a loose player who's sometimes referred to as the fish or the whale who likes to take a lot of credit and gives a lot of action on the table and then that's kind of and and so i i bring that up to share as an example of credit creation that when when a poker table is and and, the, and also an example of you know heightened transaction activity when a poker table starts extending credit to players without expecting them to settle at the end of the day what you find is that the size uh, of the gamble uh, it increases and so i like this little analogy to help you think about and and, and of course those of you who've uh, played on tables that have defaulted you also know that sometimes this very big player is unable to uh, you know honor their dues when they are called and at that point you know what happens the table starts offering the rest of the players a discount on what they are owed that has happened to me i have been one of those players uh, in a certain life uh, in another country and that's one way to think about you know the process of credit creation and also the so called inherent instability of credit um before we move on to john law i'm i'm curious manny i mean have you delved in such poker games uh you know where uh, uh, credit is offered and the paper and then the table defaults i don't know how to play poker but i am almost certain that some members of the audience have participated in a similar poker game and the player that defaulted was called sam bankman freed uh, <laughs> it's going to be offered some sort of haircut on on what they're owed so mm-hmm. you know it's a, it's a perfect metaphor for what was happening i think in uh parts of defi which had turned yeah. into a type of casino i think luna terra was very much the same way yeah um, increasing yeah. pot sizes but in the end they can't settle out into the the base money kind of obligations which were dollars not 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 exactly 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 and uh you know one sort of place one guy i think that like you know is worth talking about uh you know at this stage is is that i've been really fascinated about is is john law arguably 
the first monetarist and first financial alchemist, uh, at least in in my books. And you know, is uh, I'll give you a brief overview, and then I'd love to hear. I'd love to get Manny to fill in the pieces that I've missed. So, so Law is born 1671. Dad is a goldsmith, and so he is used to seeing these bills of exchange. The same thing that Manny talked about, which is basically just like a check. Think of it like a check that is used to settle an account. So he's, he's, he's son to a banker. He's used to seeing these bills of exchange. Um, in his 20s, uh, you know, he has a story where he fights a duel. He kills a man. He's charged for murder. And so he's a, he's a colorful character from the get-go. And then we see him in his 30s produce two uh, major pieces of work that he presents to the Scottish Parliament. One's called Two Overtures. The other one's called Money and State Considered where he starts um, explaining uh, his perspective on paper money and uh, the benefit uh, uh, the benefit of credit. Uh, the real change that happens in Law's life is in se- around 1714 when he moves to Paris and becomes friends with the Duke of Orleans. And then the year later, something crazier happens. Um, Louis XIV dies and leaves a five-year-old as his heir. So Louis XV is this five-year-old boy who's uh, basically under the supervision of this Duke of Orleans. And Duke of Orleans, by this time, has become friendly with John Law. And John Law has convinced him of a few ideas. He's, he's convinced him of this one idea that... Um, that the Dutch have uh, are pros- that the Dutch have low interest rates because they have high money circulation, not necessarily because they are you know better at doing business, and that perhaps one way France can solve its issues. And so that's the other thing. In 1715, when when Louis XIV dies, France has got a ton of debt, and uh, it doesn't have a lot of tax revenues. In some ways, it reminds me a bit of Pakistan today, which is where I'm from. And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of debt. You don't have enough tax collection to uh, meet your debt obligations. And so law starts pitching for this idea uh, to create a bank, a government bank that would issue paper currency. Law is denied his request to create that and instead is offered to create a private bank uh, which would still be able to print paper money and which would still accept legal tender, but it would still be a private bank. A year later, we see John Law acquire the Mississippi Company in 1717, uh, which is a uh, company that has uh, a bunch of monopoly rights that have been given to it on, uh, well, which also which owns a very big chunk of North America, and it also has a bunch of monopoly rights that have been given to it by the French state. But then in 1718 and 19, that's kind of when the real, I would say, dealsmanship starts happening. Uh, law finds a way to nationalize the private bank that he's created, and he also ends up merging this so-called private bank with the Mississippi Company and a bunch of other similar companies. And what he ends up with is this powerful beast of an organization that has done a few things. It has taken over uh, the debt of France. It has the permission uh, to print money. uh, And uh, it uses these two powers. He ends up using these two powers uh, to fuel uh, uh, the price Uh, of this so-called Mississippi company. And what I'm showing to you on the slides currently is uh, is the rise in money supply. Uh, Like, you know, when, uh, from which is between 1719 and 1720, the paper money that this so-called Bank Royale issued went from nothing to over 2 billion notes uh, 
uh, or 2 billion units, even though the uh, gold and silver that was backing these notes did not change fundamentally. Um, and then law did a bunch of other uh, I would say crazy things uh, in uh, with the with the Mississippi company. Uh, you know, one of the big uh, ideas was uh, that uh, the depreciated French debt could be used to buy shares in the Mississippi company. Uh, but even and, and and the trick was that you know because French debt was available at a discount, if people were to buy French debt at a discount. Uh, the Mississippi company would still accept that payment at 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 par, meaning not at a discount when they would, uh, you know, uh, subscribe to Mississippi company shares. Um, the other trick that uh, and so and so what this did was it this created this made uh, French debt more liquid, and it also created a demand for French debt, which was really fueled by uh, the shares of the Mississippi company. Other bits that Law did to fuel. Uh, the uh, I would say the the this this credit creation is that he started offering credit through Bank Royale, basically saying uh, you know uh, basically giving loans to speculators to buy even more shares uh, in the Mississippi company. And then what we see happening in 1719 to 20 is uh, you know. A graph that looks very similar to a, a typical crypto coin, where you know you see this price, uh, price uh, and, and most of my info, by the way, comes from Edward Chancellor's books, um, "Devil Takes the Hindmost" and "Price of Time." That's the source of uh, where I've learned mostly about the Mississippi Company. And although this chart is showing that the maximum price of the Mississippi Company rose to ten thousand leave before falling down to its subscription price of five hundred leave. Uh, um, Chancellor says that actually the highest price that it ever reached in, in 1720 was 20,000 leave, uh, which is like a 50x on its initial subscription price. And so, I mean, when I look at, uh, you know, the work uh, of John Law and I look at his life, you know, he comes across as someone, you know, who ended up creating I would say a far bigger, I don't know if Ponzi is the right word, or far bigger circular financial machine than anything that we've seen, you know, whether it's Madoff or whether it's SPF, like John Law's machine or system seems way bigger because it had like the patronage of a state. And, you know, it uh, at least like on paper, it seems he was like the wealthiest guy to ever, ever have lived. But but that's kind of what I know as you know as a surface level historian, uh, Manny. You are much deeper uh, into the weeds of history. So first question for you is: um, Is there anything that I'm getting wrong about you know the history and the story of the Mississippi Company? And the second one is: What would you like to add about this period that you think is very important for us to know as we navigate 2023? So I would say, I mean, to your first question, you you could talk about John Law for a lot longer if you really wanted to. I mean, I think that's that's worthy of a Twitter thread on its own. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he's one of the most fascinating characters of this of this era, mm -hmm. uh, and I think you're correct in pointing out that it was the private public partnership aspect of the Mississippi Company that kind of gave it uh, the fuel, I think, to become the, the bubble that it did. Um, I was actually going to propose not going deeper into the weeds, but actually taking kind of a more of a bird's eye view 
Please. Yeah, uh, that's even better. Yeah. And so, you know, something that is happening at the same time that's happening in, in, in France is a, another bubble, right? But in, you know, just across the English Channel in, in, in Great Britain, you have the, the, the South Sea uh, bubble, which mm -hmm. is kind of a similar scheme um, where you have monopoly rights that uh, support uh, the, these shares in, in theory. And I think the, the broad lesson of all this is actually a little bit uh, different, right? So I think a lot of people look at this as, as kind of a, a foray into the creation of paper money. I really see this as a classic episode of what financial innovation looks like and mm -hmm. how an instrument that's created for a certain purpose ends up not working out, but ends up being very valuable for something else. And the different approaches that France and the UK take in response to financial innovation, I think, has long-term influences or long-term impact, I think, for the development of both those economies, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if we take a step back, you know, equity here, you know, it used to be that infrastructure projects were financed by the crown, by the church, sometimes by massive loans from a banking family. Uh, and the creation of tradable, so you had, you know, equity companies before, but, you know, let's say you and I were the, the equity owners of a trading company, if I died, the company would be dissolved and we would have to reform it and we would have to be recapitalized. The creation of mm. tradable equities was, in fact, as you just explained, an attempt to solve the government debt problem, right? So government mm. bonds exist at this point. And this is kind of a mutation on this tradable security that's payable to the bearer, right? Uh, and, and that's a very new concept, right? Why would you let a nameless person, in fact, have equity ownership over something. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it could have been envisioned, it could have been successful, I mean, we don't know, uh, at financing public works or, you know, state, you know, fulfilling, you know, filling in the gaps into the state revenues and, and state treasuries. That was its original goal. It turns out to not have been very good for that. But it was very good at mobilizing large amounts of dispersed capital for financing commercialization first and then later industrialization. So equity finance becomes very important much later on in, in, in Europe. The, the difference is that, you know, the, the British uh, have a ban that's about 105 years long, right, on the creation of other similar companies, right, from 1720 to 1825. Uh, but the French have a much stronger revulsion against this. And so, you know, this has long-term implications for how financial, you know, economic activities kind of finance in each country. And so the, the, the British in general, right, since the Glorious Revolution, were much uh, respected property rights a lot more, which created a framework for greater financial activity. And so you can sort of see the parallel, right, with today, right? I, one could tongue-in-cheek say that Satoshi Nakamoto is kind of like the modern-day John Locke in the sense that mm. he creates this mm. token and it's supposed to be currency. Mm. And it might be that tokens on blockchains are terrible currency. They're, maybe they're not great money. Um, mm -hmm. The ICO boom kind of showed that people wanted them to function as pseudo equity right into private enterprises that were being built. It might be that tokens are actually not good for that either. It might be that the future application of tokens is something along, you know, community participation. We've seen NFTs uh, rise out of this, but, you know, it might just be that these are not new currencies, even though that was their original use case. And so, you know, it's a very, again, it's a, to summarize, it's a very classic case of financial innovation. You have this thing that's made to solve a problem. It doesn't quite yeah. fit there. It attracts a lot of attention. You have a big bubble. You have, uh, you know, lots of people get rich. 
lots of scam artists come in. Rising interest rates pop the bubble. Everyone loses their shirt. People go to jail, or in the case of John Law, going to exile. Um, and uh, yeah, but the innovation itself has a payoff much later. And so, you know, when you look at crypto today, it, it would in fact be quite strange if we had invented blockchains and if they had utility right away and if there had been no speculation and if there had been no scams. That would have been very strange in me, you know. Yeah, no, I, I I really like that. I mean, in fact, like uh, you know, the the South Sea Company or the South Sea was was uh, you know the next bit that you know uh, we we wanted to get into. And for me, you know, as a I would say as a more recent student of financial history, it was interesting that they both came in seventeen that the both that the peak valuation and the crash were was was both seventeen twenty, and they were both solving the same problem, which is that. The South Sea Company assumed 10 million pounds of British debt and the Mississippi Company, I don't know the exact details, but they've essentially also assumed um, uh, French debt. And so you, you in, in both cases, you have these private enterprises that are emerging to assume uh, uh, debt of these sovereigns and in exchange... Uh, you know, they, these these new companies are asking for uh, some permissions, uh, basically some kind of cash inflow. Uh, but I think for me, where like the South Sea company uh, becomes very interesting, you know, is um, it's like, I mean, the, 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 uh, in, in, in the price of time, Edward Chancellor quotes a bunch of newspaper analyses that are describing the South Sea company as a perpetual motion financial machine, essentially. It reminded me of some uh, funky tokens I've also played around with. And, and so for the listener, I think this would be this would be neat, right? Like this is in brief. And I mean, this, the slides are going to be in the show notes. But, you know, in brief, the deal structure was like this, that... Uh, the South Sea Company was authorized to sell a certain number of shares. They were authorized to sell 315,000 shares, uh, uh, a, 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 um, and 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 you know uh, they were going to they, they were to use those proceeds uh, to assume uh, the debt uh, of 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 Great Britain. Um, but the the story in it was without getting too technical that the if that the higher the price of the South Sea Company. Um, the more they would be able uh, to pay down uh, the British government debt and the more they would be able to pay down the British government debt, uh, the higher uh, the, the price uh, of the South Sea Company. Now, or the, the, I mean, the higher the share price, the fewer shares needed to be set, uh, were needed to settle government debt. Uh, and the fewer shares needed to settle government debt, the greater the profit of the company and the greater the profit of the company, the higher the share price. And where I find... You know, I found the uh, uh, this chapter on South Sea uh, in Devil Takes the Hindmost very interesting. Is that um, some government officials were watching uh, this uh, price inflate, and they were saying, you know, maybe we should go and fix the conversion price of the South Sea Company in terms of uh, at what price can it be converted? And 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 a bunch of uh, lawmakers were like, no, no, we shouldn't convert. And then later on, when the secret history of the South Sea Company is revealed, you learn that basically all of these politicians were essentially taking bribes uh, because they had been issued these share options uh, in South Sea Company. And so they had absolutely no interest in fixing the conversion price 
of the South Sea Company. The other part that gives me, uh, makes me feel slightly better about, uh, you know, um, speculating on shit coins and losing a lot of money in 2022 and 2021 is that Isaac Newton, allegedly, I don't know if this is true, Manny, and this is something I want to, uh, you know, ask the historian in you. Um, uh, a lot of history books point to that Newton apparently, uh, you know, saw the South Sea Company uh, entered, then exited, then entered with a lot, then lost a lot of money. Uh, I mean, you know, it makes me feel slightly better about the money that I have lost. But is this actually factual? Did Newton actually lose a bunch of money in the South Sea Company? Or is this one of those folktales that have emerged over time? Uh, I do remember reading an academic article that plots out just how much uh, Newton lost. I think he ends up, I think by the time of his death, one third poor than he would have if he just hadn't done that. That's um, not bad. That's not bad. Yeah, it could be worse, right? I mean, the figure that uh, Chancellor quotes is 20,000 pounds. And I was trying yeah. to like uh, yeah. convert that on purchasing power adjusted basis. I couldn't do it. But, then I, but then I, my gut was like, ah, that's not so bad. I mean, I guess he like, he didn't go totally broke, uh, you know, uh, getting into this. Uh, and there's this funny quote by him where he's like, I can, you know, uh, forecast the movement of these uh, uh, celestial bodies, but I don't know how South Sea Company works. Uh, there's a there's a quote like that. Uh, you know, I believe that, it is. I can predict the movement of the the stars, but not the what is it the the crowds of men, something like that. Oh yeah, I um, think I think yeah, hey, ah, that's the one actually. That's but right. I, you know, you shouldn't feel too bad. I mean, something that. Hi that quote highlights is that he understood that what he was making was a speculative bet in a multiplayer yeah. game that he wasn't really betting on the fundamentals of this company. He, he he knew what he was doing. He wasn't dumb, right? Yeah. Um, so I always describe uh, games of this sort as uh, games of uh, what was it Mexican chicken, right? In the sense that in the early stages, it's a lot like a Mexican standoff, right? Where I think somebody selling kind of uh does something you know it, everyone ends up losing quite a lot but i think in later stages of the game you're in fact want to exit early so mm -hmm. the game kind of evolves and so it the, the changing incentives are actually quite hard to measure so, uh, so i man, totally get him on that yeah so manny we've talked about this period i think this period is obviously pretty key the 1720 period um what other period in history is really important but not well known you've studied so many crises what period would you point us to, would you point me to, to say, go dig into that next? To... Well, here's a very relevant period. Uh, if, if, you know, if we go back in time three years uh, to 2020, you know, the pandemic's been going for three years, imagine that. Hmm. Um, and we saw this boom in digital kind of monetary financial activity. What that reminded me of a lot was, in fact, the monetization of the European economy after the, the Black Death. Uh, and you had something similar going on in, in Ming China, right? There's a, there's a book called the, what is it, The Pleasures and Confusion? No, The Pleasures and Confusions of Commerce. It's derived from a phrase that officials were using where uh, the increase in commercialization, I think, in, in China during this time really concerned officials um, because it, uh, you know, it, they, they saw it as a breakdown of the moral order that had been the case until then. But what happened in both, you know, what had happened in China then is 
you get um, you get a series of reforms spread out over a couple hundred years. But, you know, I mean, one of the most significant is like the single whip reforms where you commute a whole bunch of tax obligations into silver. And you get something more piecemeal happening in Europe where uh, after you have the you know massive loss of life, right, like a third of or half of population loss in some major cities. Uh, in some smaller towns. Uh, Manny, like what year? Said. Sorry, sorry, I'm interrupting. Can you give us what oh, yeah, year? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is like the, the, the 1300s, 1400s. So it's it's a long time. People forget that the, the Black 1400s around for 100 years. 1400s? Okay, wow. So, so wow, that's crazy. I didn't realize that the Black Death was around for a hundred years. Yeah. So, I, I forget when the last. I, I wrote another paper on this. I'll, I'll share it with you after the show. But yeah, the uh, I forgot when this was, but the last like Black Death outbreak in London was pretty late. Same in France and so on. Um, so you get these successive waves of of death that just kind of hit Europe. And so what that does is that disrupts the previous, uh, I wouldn't want to say feudal, because again, this was also the case in, 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 in China, hmm. um, but it disrupts the previous order in which you had to pay obligations denominated in, in kind in, in, a lot of in a lot of times, right? So you might owe taxes to your Lord, but you know, you're, you're not paying him in coins, uh, you're paying him in whatever grows best in that area, right? So it might be like some honeycombs or animals, furs, cloth, and so on. So I have a lot of these obligations. A lot of them are obligations that are just hereditary, right? So you owe me certain months of labor over the year, right? That's kind of your tax. Uh, and you do that because that was the arrangement that, you know, our forefathers had hundreds of years ago when, you know, one of them conquered and protected the other or something like that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so when you have this loss of life and people start, uh, labor starts moving around to fill in the gaps, wages go up. A lot of these get um, uh, denominated now in cash, right, in actual currency. And so that's one of the key moments where suddenly coins, so, so coins are a very good technology, by the way. So coinage becomes really important. And that's, that's how you start denominating these obligations. Uh, and, you know, you also get a lot of inflation. <laughs> so. Yeah. You know, you could see that a lot of this was was very similar. And so for me, the parallels in 2020 were uh, you have this massive pandemic, you have some disruption. And so a lot of things start getting digitized. A lot of transactions start getting digitized. So a, a lot of the movement of activity and, uh, you know, onto the Internet for me was was kind of the norm. And I think this period's understudied. We, we always assume that economies work through exchange of money. Right. But in reality, that's actually quite recent, you know. Mm. For most of human history, most obligations and most, you know, transactions were did not, in fact, require money uh, of one sort or the other. Mm. That's really fascinating. Well, that's a pretty deep rabbit hole uh, yeah. for, for me to dig. Uh, I, I look forward to doing that over the weekend. Uh, one thing, Manny, I've been really curious about uh, ever since I first met you is uh, who are your intellectual fathers? Like, who do you look up to as a thinker, a theorist, a, I don't know, economist who you would say, uh, I, I know Neil Ferguson's important. You've recommended a bunch of his books, but who else is amongst your intellectual fathers or mothers? Right. Uh, well, I think, you know, Neil is a superstar. So I, I'm happy mm -hmm. to just be a small satellite of, of many, many that kind of orbit that one. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and get their influence and inspiration from Neil. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think uh, there were two other 
uh, historians that for me were uh, very influential in my development. Uh, one is Charles Mayer, who recently just retired from from Harvard. Mm-hmm. So he wrote some fantastic books. Uh, he's kind of a model, like scholar, gentleman, uh, or, or scholar official in some ways. Uh, I think his most famous book is Recasting Bourgeois Europe. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's kind of the, the kind of the long term transformation of, of Europe from you know during the World Wars into the post war era. Uh, but you know, he's also an economic historian. And uh, I think it was my senior year at, uh, at Harvard. I petitioned to be in this graduate level seminar that was co-taught by, by Charlie and Neil. And, uh, you know, they have different politics, but they, they agree on the facts. And so, okay, know, interesting. Uh, you know, Charlie might say, well, you know, we should socialize this part of mm-hmm. the economy. And Neil would point out that that would lead to certain losses in economic efficiency and Charlie would say well you know that is a cost that we're willing to bear you know so Mm -hmm. there was there was a very clear point of agreement which was about the way to do history right they were they were honoring the procedural commitments to the evidence uh and I think that allowed them to really make that a humanistic endeavor right where they really recognize the diversity of all these experiences of people in the past and the lessons that we could learn and that's very different from how history works today. I think people's there's kind of an anti-humanism, right, where people kind of draw political caricatures for whatever little internal pol- political debates that they're having. Yeah. And that undermines their procedural commitments to the evidence. And so most history monographs today are mostly polemical, right, and they cherry pick the evidence and so on. So for me, you know, that interaction really shaped my commitment to a specific way of doing history. Yeah. And I would say kind of the other third largest influence is um, uh, Mark Elliott, who's who's still teaching. And so he's a historian of Qing China. Um, and I think it's just, you know, this is, again, all these people speak like multiple languages, but I think Mark speaks like eight, um, seven or eight, some amazing amount. You know, it's like Tibetan, Mongolian, Manchu, Chinese and so on. Um, and so it's kind of that deep grasp of the sources, I think, to me, that allows them to make certain, have a certain intuition for history and historical processes that I always deeply, deeply respected. So uh, yeah. I would say those are kind of the, the three largest influences, I think, in, in terms of shaping how I think about uh, my own work. No, I love that. I mean, you know, one thing I really look for, Manny, in, in you know, in the work of academics is, you know, um, I don't have the right word for it, but like a, a lack of bitterness. Like I get worried when like there's a lot of, angst oozing out of the words of a, of an author you know because i'm like oh god you're so angry you've got a point to to do to to make right but like you know the really good ones will like present facts to you in a you know in a very dispassionate way and i and i, and I feel like that's a that's a rare breed to find i mean and it's it's a total joy you know when you do find it so so thank you for sharing um uh uh, Charlie Charles Mayer and uh, the second name that you gave us was Mark uh, Elliot. Mark Elliot. Mark Elliot. The rabbit hole deepens. Uh, Manny, we're almost at time. I'm going to ask you one uh, powerful question. By the way, Manny, are you familiar with um, this publication called The Edge uh, that John Brockman used to? Um, so. Um, my next question to you is sort of uh, inspired by the edge and i want to i want to tell you a little bit about the edge this is a wonderful publication it doesn't happen anymore but the goal of edge 
was to assemble the most uh, uh, sophisticated minds uh, in one room and ask them the questions that they are asking themselves. And so this book would then compile, you know, these lovely answers on things like, you know, uh, what scientific a concept ought to be better known and and so on and so forth so you know um i'm kind of taking a, a script out of john brockman's work and trying to apply it to you you're a you're a sophisticated thinker that what monetary system or what money system related questions are you asking yourself these days that you don't talk to others about oh well there's two questions um uh and i i, I haven't explored the first one but the second one it I think about a lot of the time. So the first question is um, whether the American commitment to financial sanctions will kill financial innovation in this country. And the concern there is that, uh, you know, I'm, I enjoy the fruits of the American empire, right? I'm from, a, you know, from down south from a vassal state down south. So, you know, we, we know where our bread is buttered. We're, we're happy to be part of an American-dominated world rather than a Chinese-dominated one. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't come from a, you know, kind of isolationist impulse, but rather, you know, if we look at the history of, of sanctions since World War One, right, and, and Nicholas Lambert, um, who used to be, I think, at the U.S. Naval Academy, I, 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 but you know he's a fantastic writer. He's written the definitive works on this. But for the most part, sanctions are not very effective. Uh, so they really only work against small states when you have cooperations from other great powers, and even then, half the time it backfires. And so, mm-hmm. to me, you know, the idea that we're sacrificing the potential fruits of very rapid financial innovation for a tool that doesn't really work that well. Um, makes me think that there's probably other tools that we should be using rather than something that we've kind of overused since since 2001. So that's one question, uh, and that's a regulatory question. We we both know a, a very knowledgeable individual that you and I are probably going to ask this question to later. Um, and then my second question, which is a broader question, and I, I share this with with a with a few colleagues, but I don't talk nearly uh, as much about, is whether we're at the uh, we're in the twilight of of empire, right? So that mm. I, I guess that could be broken down into two sub questions. One is that did the Romans, did the people in Rome know when the Roman Empire was in decline? And two, mm. is there anything that can be done? And so I think the the historical record isn't very encouraging. It's actually very hard to come back from a state of weakness. And you know, so for me, one of the things that I really care about is American kind of regeneration and rejuvenation and I, I'm not sure if we're going to be able to pull it off. I really hope we are. Uh, but mm. the track record is, uh, you know, people that try and, and fail are greatly outnumbered the ones that try and succeed. So those are the things that I, I think about it at night, actually. Yeah. Love it. No, thank you. I mean, um, I can relate a bit, you know, I mean, like, I mean, at least, you know, one of the things, I mean, I'm from Pakistan and, you know, we we suffer a lot from, uh, terrorism and I think a lot about terror finance and I often think about you know like shouldn't my nation state be embracing this highly transparent public ledger uh, to facilitate cross-border transactions because if it did then you know the clean money that is commingled with dirty money in hawala transfers is going to thin out and it'll become much easier to track 
uh, where sources of terror finance are. But, you know, it's like getting that conversation across uh, to the bureaucracy and the military and the political leadership. It just feels like an impossible, impossible, uh, uh, you know, uh, thing to crack. But, uh, but yeah, I guess, uh, you know, we're all asking ourselves uh, some version of these questions. Uh, I will say I remain bullish on America, though, even now. I mean, you know, it's like oh, yeah. I, look at, I look at everywhere else. And I look at systems elsewhere, you know, and I find myself thinking that, you know, there's there's still a lot that's going well for this place. But uh, Manny, thank you so much for making time. Uh, this was really wonderful. And I really hope we can make this a regular feature and we can actually start Absolutely. co-hosting something like this together. Thank you it was so a much. Delight. Thank you for having me, Asfi. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We will be back next week with another episode of Money's Alchemy.